Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Please be seated. What does a life committed to Jesus Christ look like? If, if you or I say, I'm a Christian, I am a follower of Jesus, I have opened my heart to Jesus, what will that mean for how we live our lives? If we make a decision to respond positively and openly to the invitation of Jesus... Where's that going to lead us? Now, there are a lot of theories about an answer to that question. And they are wide-ranging. But my experience has been that most of the time, the answers that we give, and particularly the answers that we want, are not exactly the same answers we get from Jesus. The 21st chapter of John's Gospel is written in order to help us understand something of what it is like For people who say, I follow Jesus, and what their lives are going to be. This chapter, specifically about Peter and Jesus, speaks to us about expectations. The kinds of expectations that Jesus has for people who say, I'm connected to him. Peter, who has blatantly denied Jesus just a few days, maybe weeks before this, is now restored by Jesus. And as Jesus embraces Peter and restores Peter and reconnects Peter, he has a commission for Peter. And I am convinced that this commission that Jesus gives to Peter is not just for a fisherman a couple thousand years ago. But it is a word for you and me as we live out our lives as we try to figure out what are God's expectations for us. What does it look like? What's it going to look like if we truly connect ourselves with Jesus? If we truly are people who say and who live as disciples of Jesus. And the word to Peter and the word to us is a call to faith. A call to believe that Jesus has a plan. That Jesus has an idea, a strategy, a goal for us and a path for us. And that we believe that that path is best. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? There are, um, and three times Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. There's a lot going on here, a lot behind the scenes. There's some things related to uh, the Greek words and and the grammar and, you know, who is he, who's Jesus talking about? And, And there's a lot of things going on here. But what I'm really thinking about for us this morning is not so much those questions and that answer. But what Jesus then says to Peter after Peter says, I love you. He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said, feed my sheep. Every time Peter says, Jesus, I love you. Jesus says, feed my sheep. Take care of my lambs. Watch over my sheep. Now, Jesus isn't asking Peter an easy... He's not giving him an easy assignment. 
You know, just if you're a shepherd, sheep are hard to maintain. But you add in these words to tend and to feed. Basically, he's saying, I want you to be responsible for my sheep. I want you to watch over them, care for them, to feed them and to tend them. Those are not cushy kinds of words. They're hard words. They're working words. They're giving words. It is a call to serve rather than to be served. Jesus is, is making, giving him a call to give rather than to take. It's a call to love rather than thinking more about how others can love us. And you get a clear sense here that the most natural expression of our love for Jesus is serving others. And that takes faith because that's not our natural inclination. Someone said to me this week, when I think about a leader, I don't think about a servant. When I think of a leader, I think of power, wealth, authority. I think of someone that you serve. Someone who gets what they want. Someone who by their very presence commands attention. But I don't think of a servant. And yet, God is continually calling his people, particularly his servants, but all of his people, to serve. If you're a leader with Christ, you serve. If you're part of the kingdom, you serve. It is one of the defining characteristics of God's people. It is one of the most profound ways in which we express and prove our love for Jesus. We have a tendency to see our faith as primarily in terms of what is God doing for me? Now, it's important for God to do things in our lives. That's essential. We need God to work in our hearts. We are most open and sensitive and pliable to the Holy Spirit, though, when our attitude is giving rather than taking. When we are thinking about how we might feed and nurture others rather than trying to get others to feed and nurture us. When we are serving others rather than expecting others to serve us. Dennis Kinlaw is an Old Testament scholar and I've been reading through his book on Old Testament theology and he said something that sort of took me back. He said, I believe the proof that someone has met the living God is that he or she gets turned inside out and personal concerns shift from inward to outward. He said, do you know how badly we have corrupted that? What does to be born again mean to the typical American evangelical? Doesn't it mean to get my soul saved, to get me safe for heaven? He said, I think that's an absolute perversion of biblical truth. When the writer of Psalm 146 gets to know who God is and what God's nature is, he is astounded to discover that this Yahweh cares about the people that nobody else cares about. He said, that's one of the reasons why Christians cannot afford to give up the fact that there is no salvation anywhere except in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is the only kind of, only source for the kind of compassion that is necessary to reach the needy of the world. The blind, the broken, the hungry, the prisoner. Now, do we need Christ in our souls? Of course we do. But so often we see that as the end. Scripture tells us it's the beginning. Jesus in our lives is not the ultimate goal of following Christ. Jesus in our lives is the beginning 
of following Christ that then leads us to care about the world. It has always been that way with God's people. Go all the way back to Abraham. What does God say to him? I have chosen you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you so that you can bless the rest of the world. This is what we were, one of the things we were trying to do in our vision statement. At this bookmark that's in, hopefully in some of the pew racks in front of you. The last three bullets say, empowered by God's spirit, we will sacrifice our personal wants and desires to serve God and others. We will minister to those who suffer emotionally, spiritually, materially, or physically. We will take on Christ's suffering as our redemptive response to sin and evil. We are willing to suffer if it will help others. Because our faith isn't just about us. It's about Christ in us and working through us. You know, the interesting dynamic about God's call to serve people who are vulnerable and needy is that few, if any of them, have resources to give back to us. And you will notice that the people that Scripture tends to single out, it's the people who have few resources to give back. And it reminds us that this call of Jesus is not quid pro quo. It's not this for that. It's just this. It's just serving. We were watching a police television drama the other day, and there was a dialogue between the police commissioner and the deputy mayor. The police commissioner was trying to get the mayor to help her with, uh, with dealing with a corrupt politician in the city government. And, and the deputy mayor said to her, well, I am, you're not the only one who's concerned about this alderman, and I am happy to help you. And you could tell there was just a moment of silence of anticipation, and she was waiting. And then he said, and of course, the day will come when you'll help me. That's the way it works, isn't it? I mean, that's the way the world operates. You scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. That's how things get done. And we have a thing in the back of our mind that that's sort of how the kingdom operates too. But Jesus says, no, you just serve. Whether anything comes back to you or not, it's totally immaterial. You just serve. You just take care of my sheep. This is not a conditional command. It is completely unconditional. Which is why it's, a, it's inherently a call to faith in the resurrected Christ. Because we believe that following his call to serve is better than following our natural instincts to be served. We believe that life will be better. Life will be more of what it was created to be. To serve even if we get nothing back. Than to live our lives trying to get people to serve us. And get tons back. And it's not easy to care for people. You know, sheep wander. Sheep can be kind of grumpy and cantankerous sometimes. Sheep get self-absorbed. But Jesus says, well, okay, feed them when they're nice. No. Just feed them. Take care of them. Serve them. But Jesus isn't asking us to do anything that he isn't willing to do. I, I'm sure when, when Jesus speaks these words to Peter, ringing in the back of Peter's mind are the words of Jesus a few months, maybe longer earlier, when Jesus said, 
I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And it's interesting that when Peter writes his letter to the leaders of the churches that he gives oversight to, he commands them, care for the flock that God has entrusted to you. Watch over it willingly, not grudgingly, not for what you'll get out of it, but because you're eager to serve God. Don't lord it over people, but lead them by your own good example. Jesus models it. Jesus teaches it. Peter passes it along. It's that important, that central. So what in your life is is directed toward tending, feeding, serving others? How is your love for Jesus expressed in the way that you are serving other people, particularly toward people who have little or, or no ability to give back to you? I'm going to present you with a challenge. In the next few days, and I I really encourage you to make it the next few days. Do it today if you can. Think of a way that you can begin to serve other people. Particularly people who can't give back to you. How about signing up for children's church? I was paid to say that. Or teaching Sunday school. Actually, the next couple of weeks, I'm going to work in children's church. I don't know what's happening here, but I'm going to be in children's church. And everybody, I guess everybody's on their own here. Um, No, actually, I am going to work in children's church the next couple of weeks because I, I want to do that. I want to help our children. And I want to encourage you to do something. It might be you do something now. It might be you sign up for something that you're going to do in the fall. But something... Because our willingness to serve others, and particularly those who have a, find, are difficult, find it difficult to give back to us, it's such a strong indicator of our faith in the risen Christ and our love of Christ. It is one of the great indicators that our relationship with God is where it ought to be. So do something. But it's interesting, Jesus isn't done with Peter yet, and he's not done with us. Not only does Jesus call us to serve, he calls us to serve sacrificially. And to understand that our sacrifice and our our willingness to serve is probably going to lead us to more hardship than if we had avoided his call to serve. They talk about going against the grain of what we anticipate. Someone said to me this week that the competing religion in our country is the American dream. And subtly, that's in the back of all of our minds, that we expect and anticipate life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And we believe that if we're good, life should be good. And there's something in the back of our minds that wants to believe if we follow Jesus, life is going to be easier than if we don't. And sometimes that's the case. But I, when I read the scriptures and I read this particular incident, I have the feeling that Jesus is disagreeing with our hypothesis. That doesn't mean that suffering in and of itself or sacrificing is just some kind of spiritual virtue. But it, it does mean that we live in a world in which the evil one is against God and against God's followers. 
And it means that we live in a world in which following Christ is not the natural inclination of most of the people. And certainly not of human nature. It means we live in a world in which serving is probably going to mean being taken advantage of. A world in which loving is probably going to mean that we're going to get hurt. A world in which people who are unscrupulous, people who take advantage of others, have the most toys, have the most power, have the most wealth, and seem to live the most carefree life. I have to admit, that bothers me sometimes. Why is it that so often the people of God get shoved to the, shoved to the periphery? The people who are kind and generous and loving and caring seem to get taken advantage of by the people who are not. Jesus says, that really ought not to surprise you all that much. After Jesus tells Peter to feed his sheep, he says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you're old, you will stretch out your hands and somebody else will dress you and they will lead you where you do not want to go. And Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. And then he said to him, follow me. (laughs) Peter's like, wait a second. I was okay with the do you love me thing and feed my sheep, but now we're getting into a whole other arena here. I think if I were Jesus, I would have said, follow me, and then down the road said, oh, by the way, there's going to be some sacrifice with this. But Jesus is right up front with him, and he is with us. The death by which Peter would glorify God is probably a reference to the way in which Peter does indeed die. Tradition tells us that Peter was crucified upside down, But I think it's more than that. It's a reference to a life that might be lived on earth, enduring pain that rejecting Christ would more than likely eliminate. Now granted, there are eternal consequences to those decisions. But in the immediate, we we should not be surprised that following Jesus might cause us more hardship than if we rejected Jesus. Peter is saying, Jesus is saying to Peter and he's saying to us, your life is not your own. If you're going to follow me, you're going to give up your right to choose where you go and what you do. And you're going to have to trust me that where I lead you is right and best, even when you don't understand it and even when it feels really difficult and hard. But sometimes the struggle with God's call in our lives and the things that he leads us to is not just about people in comparing ourselves to people outside the faith. Sometimes it's comparing ourselves with each other within the church. I love this this scene as Jesus has just said this to Peter. You know, you're going to have a hard time and in your death when people are leading you around and you've lost your life, follow me. And Peter looks over his shoulder and he sees John a couple steps behind. He says, all right, but hey, what about him? What's he going to have to go through? Human nature, right? Misery loves company. I mean, you just expect it. Okay, I I understand. Okay, I'm willing to do that, but I want to hear what John's going to go through too. And Jesus says, Peter, 
you got enough to worry about. Don't worry about John. If I don't want him to suffer at all before he dies, that's up to me. Don't worry about it. Something in us wants to believe that if we can see that life between us as Christians is fair, we can deal with it a little bit more. But we are never called to a life that is defined by fairness. We are called to live a life that's defined by righteousness and justice and obedience. We are called to believe that the specific road down which Christ leads us, even if it's completely different from everybody else's road, that that road he leads us is always the best road for us. You know, we we have a hard time grasping and getting our mind around Christ treating us all differently. But he does. And we are called to be okay with that. We're called to believe that God's plan for us is best, even when it might seem to be a whole lot more difficult than the plan he's, he's got for other people. You know, as a parent, do we treat our children exactly the same in every circumstance? Not if we care about them as individuals. Because we recognize that one child maybe is a little more sensitive, another one maybe is, is a little more open, another one maybe is a little more stubborn. And we consider that when we're trying to work with them. But our ultimate goal is to try to help them grow and mature. And the only reason we would treat them all exactly the same in every circumstance is because it's a whole lot easier on us. And if we don't do that, how much more our loving Heavenly Father who knows exactly what is right and best for each of us. When you read through the book of Acts, this volume that tells the story of the history of the church in most of the first century. In the first half of the book of Acts, Peter's name is mentioned about 70 times. In the second half of the book of Acts, zero. In the second half of the book of Acts, it's all about Paul. I suspect that was something Peter had to work through. You know, Pentecost, Peter's the man. Peter preaches a sermon, 3,000 people come to Christ. Peter's standing before them. Peter has these great miracles. Peter is the guy. And then Paul comes along and Peter's no longer the guy. And that's hard. And and somehow Peter had to come to grips with the reality that if Jesus wanted him to fade into the background, that was okay. Because it's not about... What Peter thinks is the best path, it's about what Jesus knows is the best path. And the same thing is true for us. The one constant for all of us who have opened our lives to the resurrected Christ is that no matter what we face or don't face, we have to believe that Jesus can be trusted, that He is good. That he knows exactly what is best for us. And he is continually moving us in that direction. But until we believe that, until we embrace that, we will struggle to follow the path that he lays out before us. Until we believe that Jesus is good and trustworthy and faithful, 
we will wrestle. We will struggle. We will fight with him. But when we come to see that, we begin to realize through experience that he can indeed be trusted and that he is good. Whenever I think of of this passage and the story with Peter, as I've been pondering it the last few weeks, my mind turned to one of my heroes, a man named Harry Lee. Harry, I know, was here in Houghton at some point back in the late 80s or early 90s. Harry was born in Shanghai and became a believer as a teenager and was a fully devoted follower of Christ. When the People's Revolution occurred in 1949, the government began to shut down churches. And they asked the leaders of the churches to sign over the deeds of their buildings to the government. And Harry was the last remaining member of his congregation, and he refused to sign over the deed. He just felt in his spirit that it was the wrong thing to do. He was hounded continually to do this, to turn it over, but he refused. And eventually, through a series of events, Harry was arrested. And he was sent to a prison camp. In that camp, he lived in a cell that was six feet by six feet with three other men. The only way they could sleep was head foot, head foot. It's the only way they could lie down. And their toilet was a bucket in the corner. Harry went through numerous interrogations And sometimes beatings. Trying to get him to admit to crimes that he had not committed. He spent seven years in this prison camp. And when those seven years were done, he was sent to a prison farm. And in those days, most everyone who went to a prison farm never came back. After four years, the cultural revolution was ending. And things were changing in China. And they began to look at some of these cases of political prisoners. And they reviewed his case and realized that, that he had never admitted to anything. And they said, this man doesn't deserve to be in prison anymore. And they released him and exonerated him and gave him his citizenship back. For 25 years, Harry had felt a call in his life to ministry. And for 25 years, every year, he applied for permission to leave China and to go to seminary in Hong Kong where he had been accepted. 25 years, he asked. 25 years, the answer was no. When he first felt the call to ministry, he said, Lord, I think maybe I have maybe 50 years to give you. And then it was, Lord, maybe I have 40 years to give you. Maybe 30 years to give you. Maybe 20 years. Through a series of miraculous events in 1980, he was given permission to come to seminary in Portland, Oregon. When he arrived in Portland, he came and he lived in our home for a number of months. So one of the most amazing experiences of my life. What a guy. When we lived in Wisconsin, Harry came to speak at our church. And on the Monday after he had spoken... He discovered, reading the paper, that one of the gentlemen who had led the Tiananmen Square uprising was speaking at the University of Wisconsin at River Falls about an hour and a half from where we lived. And he wanted to know if we could go and hear him. And sure. 
This gentleman had, had been one of the, he'd been a professor at the university and had been one of the leaders of, of raising up the students. And when things got hot, he took off and went to the American embassy and was eventually given asylum and was at that time teaching at Harvard. And we went to hear this man, the place was just packed with people. When he was done speaking, many people stayed and visited with him, and Harry wanted the opportunity to talk with him. So we waited and waited, and finally he got up there, and they talked a bit in Chinese. So obviously, I didn't understand what they were talking about. But it wasn't very long before the people came and, and whisked him away, and it was obvious that he really didn't want to talk to Harry, and other people didn't really want to talk to Harry, because this man had many, many other people, important places to be and important people to meet. We walked out of that auditorium, we went to a restaurant for lunch, and I said to Harry, I have to tell you, I am really irritated right now. He smiled, he said, why? I said, well, I've just been putting this all together. And I'm thinking to myself, all right, here is a guy who initiated this uprising, and when things got hot, took off and left his students to all that happened, many of them to their death. And is now this famous professor that people pack out auditoriums to hear. And Harry, when I think of all that you have been through. And everything that you have endured for the gospel. And all the experiences of your life. And you come to our church to speak and, you know, maybe a hundred people show up. And you come to this place and nobody pays attention to you. And it just doesn't seem right. And he said to me, I understand what you're saying, but that's not God's way. He said, if I was as famous as this man is, I wouldn't be able to do the work of the gospel that God has called me to do. I wouldn't be able to go the places that God has called me to go. It just wouldn't work. I'm not called by God to be him. I'm called by God to be me. Because I know that whatever God has for me is best. Because I know that God is always good. And you can see why Harry Lee is one of my heroes. I have no idea what the path of your call to discipleship is going to look like. I have no idea where Christ is going to lead you. But that's really the point. It's an act of faith. To say, Lord, you know best. Just lead me where you want me to go. And I will serve whomever you put into my life. Because I know that you are good. And your ways are always best. Heavenly Father, let that be our prayer today. Let it truly be our prayer today.
in this moment of silence, let us either for the first time or the 20th time or the 100th time say, wherever you lead me, I will follow. I will serve. Because you, O Lord, are good. And your way is best. Give us grace to live as you've called us. And we ask this through Christ. Amen.